You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to Smart Sex, Smart Love, where talking about sex goes beyond the taboos and talking about love goes beyond the honeymoon. I'm Dr. Joe Court. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, and welcome back to Smart Sex, Smart Love, where talking about relationships goes beyond the honeymoon. Today, I'm joined by Hayden Dawes, LCSW, LCAS, to talk about racism, self-compassion, and radical permission. Hayden describes himself as a compassion warrior, social worker, mental health, and intersectionality therapist, and speaker. His research examines the psychosocial challenges impacting people of color and LGBTQIA individuals. He is seeking advanced methods to intervene on providers' implicit and explicit biases. He's also working on his PhD. Hayden believes radical permission is a powerful practice that is life-changing. We have to see that race operates and permeates through many of our social systems, and it often leads Black people at a disadvantage, and it advantages whiteness and European norms. So let's discuss why self-compassion is important for all of us to sustain this work. Welcome, Hayden. Welcome. I'm so glad to be here, Joe. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks I'm excited. For that lovely welcome. Thank you. And it's exciting to have you here because you speak so well about this. And for those that uh, don't wouldn't know this, uh, I did a presentation where you live. Where And where is that again? Um, I live in Greensboro, North Carolina. Oh, and that's where I was. Right. And I did a presentation on LGBTQ issues and you were in the audience. This is like, what, two years ago, three years ago? Yeah, that was. Yeah, actually, it was in Raleigh, but that was a few years ago, Joe. And it was really lovely. And I just came up to you and I had I. I think at the time I had your books with me and I was like, you're going to sign these and we're going to take this selfie right here and we're going to have a great gay old time. Yeah. I wish you definitely put that on the website just because that was very nice. You know, for me, you're, you're like the younger generation, newer up and coming. And, um, you know, the people that read my, have read my work are usually my age. They're middle age, 10 years earlier and 10 years older or more. And so for you to have come up to me, it made my day. It was like, wow, the younger people are reading my work and like my work. Well, Joe, meeting you is like meeting one of my heroes. Um, Your work has been really impactful early on, even before I sort of joined the profession of social work and being a mental health therapist. So um, it was another life-changing kind of full circle moment for me. Thank you. Thank you so much. And now it's mine uh, with you. And now you're going to teach me things. And I love it. And that's what I want to know. And that's why then we had you come to Modern Sex Therapy Institutes and help me with the LGBTQ uh, presentations, which I hope you'll do again sometime. Not to obligate you on my podcast, but... Actually, I'm already on the schedule, Joe. I think we're doing it again sometime next year. I love it. I'm so pleased. It makes me so happy that I have you included. So let's talk about your work. Um, You know, I just... I've heard you say this, and I'm, I'm glad you're bringing this up about um, the whole idea of the, the racism and how it leads Black people at a disadvantage and, advantage, and advantages whiteness and European norms. Can you just break that down? Yeah, I could definitely break that down for you. So many of us lived through the summer racial reckoning with the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery. And as in addition to understanding COVID-19 and its disproportionate impact on communities of color, and particularly Black, Indigenous, and Latinx folks. And so we can see that there is something within our society on a structural level that really places a lot of the burden on the 
um, Black and brown bodies. And yet we see that, you know, white folks don't experience the same sort of challenges in navigating their life. And so there's something within our structures and our social systems. In addition, there's something that happens interpersonally, cross-racially. You know, there's a preference towards white ideas of beauty, what's considered to be um, the most ideal. Um, So anti-Blackness is something that's rampant. And I even see it within myself of understanding my ideas of favorability, my own internalized racism. So those are other sort of elements that I think it's really important for us to really look a lot more clear-eyed about it. Uh, and and some people, what do you think about this? I, I just, I feel like I have to say this. Some people don't agree with this. They think, no, it's not like it used to be. And black people and brown people and all people of color have different opportunities and they haven't caught up with the times. And I mean, and then there's Candace Owens. I mean, maybe that's a whole other podcast. I mean, sometimes her arguments sound so convincing. You know who she is, right? Yes. Yes. What do you think about all that? Like, how do you, because I don't agree with a lot of that. I, you know, it's interesting. I was just talking to someone earlier about Candace Owens. I think we have to understand that it would be really, if I was a white person, it would be really hard for me to look at that, to think, you know, I've worked really hard in my life to get everything that I own. And now you're telling me that my whiteness is a p- piece of property that allows me to navigate the world Um easier than anybody else. I don't want to hear that. And so I think some folks like Candace Owens honestly gives people cover to uh, to espouse certain beliefs that the boot just sort of plowing through with your own bootstraps is going to be enough and that there's not other forces that are really impacting our ability to live with as much well-being as possible. So that's what I make about that. I am not in the camp of necessarily saying someone that they're racist because I don't think it's going to make them be any not racist or anti-racist. It's the same way when I used to do addiction treatment. I don't use the language of calling people an alcoholic or an addict because it's shaming. It's pathologizing. And I don't think it necessarily um, appropriately externalizes what the root issue is. And the root issue is these are systemic issues and we're all swimming in the swamp together. So if you don't mind breaking that down, someone's going to hear systemic issues. They're like, what, what, what are you saying? What is it? What can you be more specific? Yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, what it means is when we look at education outcomes, when we look at employment outcomes, when we look at health um, outcomes, when you look along the lines of racial, racial groups, and we have to understand that there is nothing, we are all human beings and biologically we are closer um, genetically, we're closer with someone that of a different race than necessarily someone within our race. So race is a social construct. Mm, okay. And yet it has teeth to it and it has power to it. There's a ways in which our legal system and the ways in which people were codified to being in certain races that allows us to be in these social systems where certain people live in certain places and other people live in other places. So that's what I mean by the system. This is something that is constructed by both social, cultural norms, the ways in which we operate. When people use coded language, like that's not a safe neighborhood. What are you really saying? Are you Uh. saying that it's predominantly black? Um, If there's, if there's lack of opportunities in certain places, 
that was constructed by people. We people create these norms that impact certain groups versus other groups, that reward other groups for just being who they are, and that really penalize other groups just by who they are, just by how much melanin they have in their skin. I'm just thinking about, I think about this periodically, but it's in my face right now. When we, I grew up in a, uh, Oak Park, Michigan, in the seventies was black, um, Arab, Chaldean Arab and Jewish. And, uh, so, I mean, I wasn't raised with prejudice. I mean, we had prejudice in my family, but it, it wasn't, it was because my grandmother felt that way or my mother felt that way, but I didn't, we were in our schools. We were just raised that way. Anyways, we moved further North and to a mostly white neighborhood just because that's where the, where we moved to. It wasn't because of that. And my mother had a black friend who came over a woman and, um, she was there 10 minutes and police swarmed our house. Mm. And, um, they thought they said that they saw a neighbor had complained that um, they thought there was a burglary happening in our house. It, and I remember knowing back then that's not what they complained about. They complained. Well, maybe they did think that, but it was because she was black. If And my, this friend was so upset. She ended up going home. How, how does how does that how do you speak to that with systemic uh, racism like you're talking about? You know what I mean? Like you have language for that. Yeah, I think the language to get our hands around this is is really difficult. I mean, that's racial stress and trauma. Yes. And we understand with minority stress theory and understanding that people that are in an, a social environment like that, like that friend that you mentioned, imagine what toil she walks around with always constantly being in fright of uh, and being perceived as a threat, even if you don't view yourself as a threat. Mm-hmm. I mean, Joe, I've been in places, even going into my own therapy and I've had white women grip, grip their purses around me and be scared about what I might do to them. And then I'm locked. My body is locked up and mm. it's fright. It's, it's frightened. And I don't know what to do with that all the time. So we have to understand that, being in different racial groups and around racial groups often does bring about more anxiety for everyone involved. When I navigate a lot of predominantly white spaces, I might feel anxious about that. And so we want to normalize that. We want to say, you know, this is the, the swamp that we're all living in. So let's speak to it. Let's have more courage to really speak to what's going on, to talk about these racial dynamics when we walk into boardrooms and you're the only person that's there. You know, we're both gay men. We understand what it's like to be the only sort of gay person in the room Mm -hmm. and what kind of burden that puts on us. And we don't want to make it a thing, but if we don't sort of talk about it, it, it's a shaming experience. You know, we, the thing about my race is I can't escape my black skin. Right. Your your mom's friend, she could she was just wanting to see her friend that moved right. across town. Yes. And so now we can understand why if your skin is viewed as a threat by other people, you start hating your own skin. So that's what internalized racism. Absolutely. You start hating your own cultural norms and values, and that's viewed as not being the right way to do things. Because in in some ways in our capitalist American society, it's like you want to climb up the ladder of mobility just like anybody else when your own sort of culture, your own norms is a liability in in order to do that. Mm. That makes so much sense. And I've had some people of color tell me that they're afraid of other people of color. So they've internalized the messages of fear around each other. 
Absolutely. I mean, you can think about some celebrities like, you know, what Bill Cosby would say about sort of calling other Black people ghetto or why aren't you, why are your pants sagging? And, you know, you can, again, see it a lot in the beauty industry and understanding sort of the politics around Black hair and Black women's hair. So there's many different, you know, skin bleaching that happens in certain places, even around the world. This is not just something that is um, an American thing. Um, although the way that America does it has been kind of exported everywhere in the world. Oh. Um but it, it runs rampant to understand that that is the supreme way that a body should be. And you speak about this so professionally and academically, and you talk about critical race theory. Can you talk about that and why the controversy? So it's really interesting. I'm, I'm actually doing a lot more study about critical race theory in, um, in academic settings. And it comes out of legal scholarship um, in the late sort of 1970s, early 80s, where some of these Black legal titans were wanting to understand how race moves in American society and understand how it makes differences in terms of legal um, positions in particular. And so this is one of the sort of major tenets to help inform diversity trainings that happen in our country. And so the Trump administration issued an executive order stating, you know, no more trainings that have critical race theory involved, that have diversity training involved. Um, we really? don't want to talk about white privilege. Yeah, this happened like in the, I think around September, the executive order. So any federal government, um, Federal government, what am I thinking of? Third party contractors. Yeah, any 30 contractors, we don't want you having any of these trainings whatsoever. And so from from the folks that I know that do a lot of these trainings, they were saying they were talking about a lot of their partners and a lot of people that had hired them started to feel a little bit more um, wary about having more of these trainings. And I honestly, Joe, I think it's a good thing that that there was that they they were feeling scared about these trainings going on because mm. it means there must be something here. Mm-hmm. If we don't want white folks to feel the discomfort that's associated in with race and whiteness, you know, it, 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 we wouldn't be getting anywhere if they weren't saying we don't want you to talk about mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. So I think that lends to why there's so much controversy about it. And my thing is it's one lens, it's one idea to help us understand that racism, especially within American context, is an ordinary thing. It is so ordinary, sometimes some folks can't even see that it's happening. Mm-hmm. They can't, and or feel it. And, you know, I've heard, um, I had a, a Shadeen on um, my, one of my last podcasts, and one of the things I loved about what she says is, if because I'd say, God, I never thought about that. And she'd say, and that's where you're probably pr- privileged. Because you only think about it when you can feel the discrimination or the judgments from others. That made sense to me. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. How does critical race theory uh, relate to the term intersectionality? Yeah, Kimberly Crenshaw and some other thinkers and other disciplines wanted to understand what it is about folks that have two marginalized identities and how it's not just an additive kind of effect of feeling these discriminations. It's kind of like more of like a multiplication effect of it. Mm. And there's also ways in which their issues of discrimination may not be seen by one or two contexts, meaning in particularly Black women experience unique 
experiences of discrimination related to them being Black women. You can't just understand them just being women or just being people that are Black. Mm. That there is something unique about that particular intersection that white women don't experience Mm -hmm. and that Black men don't experience. Right. So it could either add to your privilege, your other identities, or it could take away and further discriminate against you, your other identities. Right. Absolutely. I have to think a lot. There are certain things that I go through as a gay black man that you, Joe, as a white gay man don't experience. Right. I don't think I ever really appreciated that. I'm just going to be honest until it was pointed out and people of color started talking about it. And in the sex therapy, a sect industry, we started to make room and should have always made room. It was really a, it's, it's an unfortunate thing that it's just begun the last few years, but talking about um, that kind of thing. Sure. I used to think I'm gay, you know, I'm gay. Doesn't that take away? And it does. I have just received much discrimination from that place, but I've also experienced lots of privilege from being white male and cisgender. I never understood all that. Right. Well, and, 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 and the interesting thing is like the more I understand myself and the ways in which I navigate the world, the more, and I listen. And as a therapist, I listen to other people's stories, the more I'm able to see like, Oh, this is different or it is the same. Like there is a certain way in which um, black gay men are hypersexualized in a way. And, the ways in which sort of comments about genitalia that really on one hand, it's like, Oh, is that flattering? Or is that really something that's kind of like unfair, gross, objectifying? So there are really a lot of different layers to all of this. And that's what intersectionality helps with. It helps form one more lens to understand how these all interact within, within each other. Would you be willing to share a little more? You said that one, you know, like you notice women clutching their purses, um, being black. What other things have happened to you? Well, I'll go back to that same example, Joe. Like I was on my way to see my therapist, um, who is a white woman, and I was like super excited to go in there. I was like, you know, I'm I'm generally someone that like I go into therapy, I don't really have a plan. I might have something in the back of my hand, but no, this day, like I literally got a piece of paper out. Like I was ready to process. <laughs> like I was, you know, a a a, a grade A client. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I went to my therapist's office and I was like looking through the door and I was like, oh, well, she's not there. And she's in a, she's in a suite that's like two floors, but there's other offices of other disciplines along the hallway. And I look in, I'm like, why is her light dark? I'm like, that's odd. Well, I kind of like slid down the wall and like, I get my phone out to send her an email. And this white woman walks down the hallway. She looks at me and she gives me that look that I interpret as, well, what are you doing here? She goes into this room. It's the bathroom. And I'm like, that's strange. Mm -hmm. And so I send this email and I get an out of office reply. And it kind of says that my therapist is doing a training. I was like, oh, I must have had something off. Um, Somehow I forgot that. So as I'm walking past the bathroom to leave, She opens the door. She looks at me and she goes, Oh my God. And I'm like, you know, like feeling really constricted and I shrink and I'm like, Oh, I'm sorry. You know, it it feels very kind of um, disempowering, emasculating. I might say I go into the hallway, into the stairwell and I just burst into tears. Yeah. And the tears are about what? So people can understand. The tears, um, 
Um, that's a good question. Fear, was- relief, just feeling so disempowered. I, I wasn't angry at the right then and there. I just shame. Would it be shame? Hmm, maybe. Yeah, a little bit. Like I just felt like I, very just. Sh- I, I I can't even put language to it. My shoulders yeah. felt shrunken in. Like I wanted to crawl in a ball. So maybe it was a little bit of shame. I went into my my car, called my partner. You know, it's it's awful. It is awful, and it's and the thing is, what what's even more awful, Joe, is some people will say, oh, they'll dismiss it. Oh, that just, that's not that big of a deal. So further invalidating environment. Yeah. And sometimes that's worse than what happened to you, I think. Oh, absolutely. Don't you think? Oh, no, I I agree with you. And you go to, you know, what we're understanding more about trauma is, you know, flight, flight or freeze. We also understand how important social engagement is. And so if you go, if you look, if you're in that constricted position and you lift your head up and you're looking for for warm, loving eyes, that tender, safe haven environment, and you find none there, you know what that person says to themselves? There's nowhere out here for me that's safe. Yes, right. Right. And then that would just be so isolating and so lonely. Um, so what do you, when you talk about white people doing their work, what does that mean when, when white people hear that? You know, I think to give you an example, Joe, it means let's start slowing down. Yeah. Let's start bringing about, we all have little traumas around race. You know, if you have a situation in which you you had a black friend when you were growing up and you might've said something to them that you overheard, you know, white people say to black people or whatever, or if, if you had a situation in which your mom's black friend came over, maybe it's time for you to process that and slow down and understand it from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Feel more of that emotional pain that's associated with it. Let it move through you and see what it has to teach you. I had a black client who was on vacation with his friends and uh, he was just floating in the water, trying to just get away from work. And um, several white people came around him and said that are friends of his and said, so, you know, we want to be better with racial issues. Can you tell us what to do and where, where to go, what to read? Can we talk with you for a little bit? And he said, I'm on vacation. I don't want to do this. It's exhausting. And it was, and we spent the whole session talking about what that was like for him and how they didn't understand. Does that, does, have you been in those kind of? Oh, absolutely. Cause it's objectifying. I was in my faith community which is a predominantly white faith community. And I've grown up in predominantly white spaces my whole life. Like I've been one of these people that have had to just navigate it all. Like I feel a little bit like a mutt, right? (laughs) And this particular Sunday, they were talking, you know, a lot of messages. I I attend a Quaker meeting and a lot of the messages were around race. I was sitting next to a white man I had never met, Joe. Did not know this man, never seen him before. Did not have a relationship with him. The meeting ended and he said, oh, can I tell you a story? And I'm thinking, where is this going? He said, yeah. He said, you know, I worked um, as a court mediator at one point and this black man and this white man. And I said, excuse me, stop. I said, help me understand, like, what told you that it would be okay for you to share that story Mm -hmm. with me? Well, I don't know. Like you're here at meeting. And I thought, I said, stop. I said, would you have shared that story with me if I was a white person? Mm. 
Well, I mean, I really don't think it's that big. I said, stop. Mm. I need you to slow down. I said, because you do not know me at all. And right. I don't know you. I'm, you're not just going to emotionally dump your stuff on me. Or what I find often is look for my absolution. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not my job. That's not my place. I really want people to hear this. I never thought of it. And you just used a word and it's objectifying you. My client was objectified. You were objectified there. I never thought of it that way. It's so true. Well, it be, it's so because what we have, what this c- culture and society says with many of the tropes that it has of black people is they're either really threatening. Yeah. We've talked about this or they're there to offer you comfort. Yeah. Yeah. You know, oh, we just love when that black woman gets up there and she sings her heart out. It just makes us feel so warm inside. (laughs) Or, you know, we just love that Mamie figure. Just come, oh, come here, sugar, and put your head on my heart. What? That is objectifying. It is not humanizing at all. You don't see that person's true humanity and their sense of self. You think about what it is that you need in that situation. There's nothing relational about that. Oh, I could just have you talk so long. So, but I want to go into the humanity part because you do radical permission. That's your work. And I want you to talk about it because I think that is uh, about being human and humanity. So it's interesting, Joe. I was doing, are you into the Enneagram? No, I know about it, but no. You know, I don't, I really don't know. I shouldn't really talk about things I don't know, but here we are. Um, I think I'm a type two. And one of the things I was reading through it, it was like type twos really need to start like, slowing down, listening to their own needs, what's important to them. And that's, that's so me. And so that's what radical permission is for me. Radical permission is a practice to offer yourself a permission slip. So today I, I will allow myself to race rest today. I'm going to give myself permission to have a hard conversation with my partner. It is that short little prompt with something else that you might need in order to move yourself forward in life, move yourself forward in that moment. It could be something as simple as today, I give myself permission to practice gratitude, or it can be as something as complicated as, you know, today I give myself permission to notice when I am feeling angry inside and to allow myself to express my anger. So, so yeah, go ahead. No, you go. You go. I was so it's really like doing something for yourself that would be counter the nature or counter the direction you're going. Absolutely. And you know, Joe, as a practicing clinician, clients often know what it is they need for themselves to feel better, to do better. And so sometimes it's like giving themselves that self-consent to do the counter, um, the counter direction of their norm, to have a disconforming experience from what they are they generally do. And so when they come in in session, they're like looking for us to give them permission. And it's like, no, you got this boo. I'm just here in your corner to support you. Mm -hmm. So when our parents, when we were younger or our caretakers, whomever that might be, gave us permission slip, it felt like it feels empowering. So these little things, I'll like, I'll put them in my pocket and it's like, you know, like this feels really good. Like I've got my own back right now. That is so nice. What I think you have a gift for is breaking down these concepts and talking about them in non-threatening ways, educational ways. And for me, anyways, it may, it invites my ears. It invites me to want to listen to you. And 
uh, I think that's a gift and a talent that uh, you have that a lot of people don't. And um, I hope that people continue to hear you. Is there anything else you want to say today before we wrap up that we didn't get to? Yeah, I think we talked about a lot, Joe, and I really appreciate that comment from, you know, it's lovely to hear that from one of your sort of heroes and friend tours out there, friend plus mentor. Um, So that's really, that's really (laughs) lovely. Um, I think the other thing is like how important self-compassion is to this work, how important self-compassion is to me. You know, recently I made a comment that was, you know, probably not the best comment. And one of my social media followers kind of called me in about it. And I just, I have to slow down and recognize that I'm someone that is willing to put their heart out there and make and take risks. So with that, I have to be more gentle to myself. And so I invite us all, especially, you know, these white folks that are trying to do better around race, you are going to make mistakes over and over and over again. And I think one of the things that I think we should all sort of decolonize from ourselves is this idea of perfectionism, this idea of rugged independence that we have to have all the answers before we get anything started. Self-compassion slows us down and says, you know, I'm doing the best that I can in this moment with what I have. And also, I think that's also a platform to build better relationship and better community, because that's ultimately, I think, what's needed in a lot of this work. And you're doing it. And that's the thing about you. You said it earlier, um, you, your heart, your heart is in it. And I, that's probably what draws me to you. And you're my friend too. So I'm so glad you're here. Um, how can people find you online? You talked about your social media. Yeah. Um, so I'm active on Twitter at HC Dawes. Um, I'm also active on Instagram and I also have a website. You feel free to email me and we can have conversations. And this is the kind of thing that I love to do. And what's your website? Um, it is um, hcdaws.com. Um, I have a newsletter so folks can also sign up for my newsletter and you'll hear more about sort of the offerings that I have. Some of them are free for the public or if I'm doing a training, you can often sign up for the training there as well. Thank you so much, Hayden, for being my guest today. I really appreciate it. And those of you listening, if you enjoyed this podcast, then please don't forget to rate it, review it, and subscribe. And you can follow me at Dr. Joe Court on Instagram and Twitter myself. And I'll see you next time. Stay safe. Thanks for listening to this episode of Smart Sex, Smart Love. I'm Dr. Joe Court, and you can find me on joecourt.com. That's J-O-E-K-O-R-T.com. See you next time.